This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people saying, no thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Guy Johnson's still on holiday. He'll be back with us on Monday. Just gone 5pm in the city. Let's get you some price action. The FTSE 100 softer by a third of 1% at the close today. The equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, also a little lighter, down nine-tenths of 1%. The risk aversion came through this market as the session grew older. The S&P 500 down by a half of 1% at the halfway point just through it of the trading session this Tuesday. As for in the FX market, dollar weakness was the story earlier in the day. Then the dollar came back a little bit against the pound. The pound softer, weaker against the US dollar. Cable down by around about a tenth of 1%. The euro hanging in there, stronger by a tenth of 1%, going into an ECB decision and news conference with President Draghi tomorrow. In the bond market, Treasury yields do drop a little bit lower. 10-year Treasuries down by three basis points, just sub 250 at 2.49%. Your two-year note, your yield, 2.33%. So that's a picture of these markets. Let's give you an idea, a picture of the top stories. Here is Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much. Lots going on. Got to begin with the IMF, International Monetary Fund, cutting its outlook for global growth to the lowest since the financial crisis amid a bleaker outlook in most major advanced economies and signs that higher tariffs are weighing on trade. World economy, according to the IMF, will grow 3.3% this year down from the 3.5% the IMF had forecast for 2019 in January. The European Union, meanwhile, preparing retaliatory tariffs against the United States over subsidies to Boeing, significantly escalating transatlantic trade tensions hours after Washington vowed to hit the EU with duties over its support for Airbus. And speaking of Airbus, Virgin Atlantic Airways has ditched its flying bar in favor of family-friendly sofas on its new fleet of Airbus A350 jetliners. The so-called loft lounge will feature a 32-inch television screen along with Bluetooth headphones. Passengers will be able to order food and drink as they relax on the red leather seats, but the longtime virgin feature of a saloon area in the skies is gone. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrow, back to you. So just to be clear, is this for business class and passengers? Just also to be clear, this is for the A350, the new planes that they're going to be for flying. For the new plane, yeah. but exclusive. But, but, to, so in Virgin Atlantic, this is upper class, but, right? That's uh, what they call it. That, that's, that's what they call, what they call it. And, and what, what, what's frustrating is I have flown on aircraft. You know what? It's not a bad thing. I've flown on aircraft with these bars. When you're flying in the right time zone, when you're flying in the right direction, having the bar, having an area to socialize is wonderful. I have also been on those flights where it has not been, quote, in the right direction, i.e. coming back from Hawaii to the United States, and it looks like a kindergarten in there with families, everybody's, you know, feeding little kids. Uh, for me, it was not the place that I wanted to be. But and they had where juice. you sat, where you sat is important, too, because if you're sat near that bar... 
let me tell you, it ain't yeah. much fun. Yeah, and that, that's why I say, you know, I, I I don't know about you, but you've been on planes like that where they do have the bar area, yeah. and it's it's a lot of fun. It does, you know, it breaks up. You know, if I want to sleep on planes, Charlie. I just want to sleep. I can't sleep. I can't I sleep. Don't listen you to know, people I, banging around. No, and I, I I agree with you there. Everybody should mind their own business, but I don't. You know, I like to get up. I like to walk around. But uh, anyway, but the bar area I always felt was a nice place. Even if you don't drink alcohol, it was a nice place to socialize, sit in there, relax, and uh, uh, and on, on a lot of the other airlines, the economics of and the realities of flying airplanes in the sky. Why have a non-revenue generating bar? Because a lot of the drinks were complimentary when you can squeeze in more seats. I get that from the business model. Charlie Pellet. Great to catch up with you, Charlie. We'll catch up with you in about 27 minutes' time. My pleasure, sir. Want to get to our top story today, the IMF playing catch-up. It's cut its global growth outlook to the lowest since the financial crisis. It caused the world economy to grow 3.3% this year. That's down from the 3.5% forecast back in January. We caught up with Gita Gopinath, the IMF chief economist. She says this will be a delicate recovery. It's going to rely on uh, recovery in Argentina, in Turkey, in many stressed economies of the world. It's going to rely on the euro area, not growth, not slowing even faster than we expect, similarly for China. So this is a precarious uh, situation. Uh, and there are continue to be many downside risks. I mean, even though the trade right. tensions look like they've improved, there, is, there are risks to trade. Joining us now to discuss Michael Hewson, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets, and he joins us. Out of London, Michael Houston, your thoughts on the IMF? A little bit behind the curve here. Just, just for a change, John. You know, I sort of always wonder whether I should redesignate the IMF to impossible mission force, i.e. it's impossible for them to get their mission right in terms of their forecast. Because when you consider what they were projecting for Germany and Italy in Q3, and where they are now... Oh, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's, you know, Germany's fallen off a cliff. Italy is already in recession, I would argue, and Germany is likely to follow suit. I mean, if you actually look at the German economy at the back end of last year, it stagnated at best. You know, maybe there was some growth of around about 0.1%, but certainly what we've seen thus far this year in terms of the PMIs on the manufacturing side anyway, there does appear to be divergence on the services side. On the manufacturing side, it paints a really worrying picture. And I think really does show, throw into sharp focus, I think the problem that the ECB is going to have tomorrow when it tries to guide monetary policy for the rest of the year. Looking at the forecast and those revisions from Q3, for anyone that hasn't had a chance to look at the IMF report for Germany, from the October forecast, we've had a revision of 1.1%. That's 110 basis points shaved off German growth projections. From the January forecast, it's an extra, I don't know, 30 basis points or so. For Italy, though, as you point out as well, Michael, it's 90 basis points. It's almost one full percentage point. Now, these are big economies, Mm. and this is only six months ago. It's only six months ago. Mm. What were they looking for that didn't materialise? I think what they didn't realise was the effect that these emissions changes, as well as obviously these concerns about China trade, had on Germany's economy. And Germany is a big exporter of cars and the like to countries like the US, to China and to the UK. Now, obviously, the Brexit crisis is reaching its denouement. And I think at some point you're seeing used car sales, new car sales here in the UK slow down quite markedly. They've slowed down quite sharply in China. And I think you're getting a similar sort of problem um, playing out in the United States. And that's not that's before you even start to factor in 
the problems car manufacturers have had with the emissions scandal and obviously the changes to emissions rules that happened in the middle of last year. And I think the IMF have missed it. So this confirms where we are relative mm. to where we were. Now we need to talk about where we're going. So the IMF late to the game, late to the party. They always are, Michael. You know, you and I will both agree on that. I'm just trying to work out the trajectory now mm. from here. We were looking for a bottoming out process for some of these major economies. Have you seen sufficient evidence that a bottoming out process has started to develop? I haven't. Um, we did see a little bit of a pickup in the China PMIs, but I'm not convinced that that probably wasn't a little bit of catch up because of Chinese New Year. I'd want to see a pickup in the next two or three months to really have some confidence that we could be hitting the bottom. And you could argue the IMF are always late to the game. They've probably called the bottom in this particular downturn. I, on the other hand, am not convinced if the ECB was confident of a pickup, they wouldn't be telegraphing a September reintroduction of TLTROs. So that tells me they're very worried. The Federal Reserve is very worried, given where they were at the end of last year, given where they are now. I mean, it's it's pretty much 12 weeks, but 10 weeks they went full reverse, full handbrake turn, three rate rises this year, none. And now the market's pricing in a 53% possibility of a rate cut by the end of the year. So central banks are worried. Yeah. And, and I'm worried if they're worried. Michael Hewson, sticking with me, sticking with us. Our next on the programme, we'll get you up to speed. Cover your ears on the Brexit debate. That's next. Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London on Brexit, just around the corner from New York and London. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. Guy Johnson away on holiday for the rest of this week, I believe. He'll be back with us on Monday taking a well-earned break. I'm still waiting to take my first vacation day of the year here in the United States. So looking forward to Guy coming back so I can take a day off in a market. Not bitter at all. Let me get you up to speed on a price action at the close. Down a third of 1% in London on the FTSE 100. Sterling just a little bit softer. We're coming in a couple of two tenths, a couple of basis points. Coming in two tenths of 1% to $1.3038. With me to try and make some sense of things as we approach... Another Brexit deadline and another EU summit. Michael Hewson, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. I've Michael, mislaid my tiny violin, John. Come on. Uh, well, for, for me or Prime Minister May? <laughs> for both of you. What is going on? What is? I mean, I think this is really a question of whether or not the European Union are minded to grant an extension. Personally, I think for all the fluff and noise that's coming out of France and the bad cop, good cop, I think we will get an extension. I'm not really sure what value an extension will have, if only just to keep the Conservative Party and the Labour Party and MPs to continue to argue amongst themselves about the future relationship, none of which is really covered in the withdrawal agreement. So I really don't understand why they can't just pass pass the thing. I nearly swore there. Sorry about that. What, um, what did you almost say? I didn't pass even the think, damn thing. No. <laughs> Oh, you're allowed to say that. The D okay. word. Did you say the D word? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you can. The frustration is tangible. I think, in terms of um, us sitting here, you're seeing people like Keir Starmer talking about the fact they've taken no deal off the table. 
you know, for a director of public prosecutions or an ex-DPP, he should know better. The only way that the UK can take no deal off the table is to revoke Article 50 or pass the deal. Everything else is in the hands of the European Union. Well, let's talk about the extension and yeah. your base case for the length of the extension. The Prime Minister wants till some point in June. Yeah, it's not going to happen. The I cannot see them going The European that. Union wants something a whole lot longer. Yeah. So what are we going to end up with? A choice of two, the end of December, um, which I think is what the French are pushing for, or a year, which Donald Tusk is pushing for. I have a feeling that they'll get something euphemistically called a flextension. A flextension, which basically means that they will get something until the end of December. But if they can come to an agreement before that, there will be a guillotine that comes down on the Brexit day and they will leave on that day. So are we participating in European parliamentary elections? I think that's generally a given. I think the Conservative Party, Labour Party is starting to field or looking to field um, candidates for that election. I think it's highly likely that they will have to sit them. No one wants them. But given where MPs are now and the fact that they can't coalesce around a single outcome, we're beyond the date or getting close to the date where we have to make preparations to stand MPs or MEPs in those elections. Now, this can this extension is likely to have the conditions attached to it because I think there's an awful lot of bad feeling, not a surprise really, from some Brexiteers who have suggested that they could be disruptive in the event that MEPs get elected to the European Parliament. So you may find that there are some uh, restrictions placed on what the UK can vote for. I'm not sure how legally binding these restrictions would be because we'd still be a fully paid up member of the European Union. And I'm not really sure how you could actually stop people from voting on issues like budget and what have you. We've got like half a minute left, 30 seconds, Mike. If I had to put you on the spot, would you be a buyer of Seller or of Sterling going into this summit? I'd be a small buyer of Sterling. I still don't think there's an awful lot of upside in it simply because once we move past um, an extension, you've then got the possibility of a general election. And the likelihood is that any new general election is unlikely to give you a positive outcome and could actually bring about the prospect of another hung parliament or potentially a Labour government. Michael Hewson, always great to catch up with you, sir. Thanks for giving us some of your precious time. Michael Hewson there, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London, getting you up to speed on the latest on Brexit. Next up on the programme, a monster bond offering from Saudi Aramco, followed up by some monster demand. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Typically, I would be alongside Guy Johnson, but he is taking a well-earned holiday and will be back with us on Monday. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Here's your price action this Tuesday. The FX market throwing up a weaker dollar in the early part of the session. As the session grows older, we get a bit of a stronger one against the pound. Cable softer by two-tenths of one percent. The pound weaker there going into that EU summit and another Brexit dead 
deadline that most people think will cease to be a deadline once we approach it and the Brexit situation will be kicked hard down the road. How hard is perhaps the debate? The uh, Prime Minister would like an extension out to June at some point. The European Union would like something much longer. I have no idea how this ends up. In the words of Alexander Stubb, the former Finnish Prime Minister, the way Europe typically operates, and he tweeted this out and I thought it was perfect, phase one, crisis, phase two, chaos, phase three, suboptimal outcome. And typically that's what we end up with, a suboptimal outcome. It will be interesting to see what happens once all of this mess concludes and presents itself with some kind of solution. So that's the Brexit situation. Elsewhere in the bond market, we look a little something like this for Treasuries. Yields coming in three basis points on a 10-year. South of 250, this is in the United States, US Treasuries, 2.493% is your 10-year yield. On a two-year, your yield coming in two basis points to 2.339%. That's the Treasury market. For the broader bond market, massive attention on the 12 billion dollar debut bond offering from Saudi Aramco. It was meant to be about 10, but they upsized it. And that's because the order book was north of 100 billion dollars. A massive amount of demand for this. It priced richer than the sovereign, so yields lower on Saudi Aramco than yields on Saudi Arabian debt. Just think about that for a moment. Original, a bit of a quirk. The real attention was just on how much demand there actually was. So we started to have a conversation, Tom Keen and I, with Joel Levington, our director of fixed income research here at Bloomberg. And we began by asking him about the order book and how whether there's a big difference between actual demand and the demand reflected in an order book. Take a listen to what he had to say about that and pricing and all the other things that you might be interested in in this bond offering. Order books, uh, when they're built up, meaning that um, investors like mutual funds or buy-side shops, when they're putting in their orders with their brokers, uh, for big deals like this, they tend to uh, over-order. So uh, essentially, if they wanted 10 bonds, they might put in for 20 because they know that the, the demand is going to be very high. Uh, and they're looking to get uh, you know, like a, a piece of the allocation. So I would say that, um, that the order book, which uh, on the Saudi deal is over $100 billion, probably overseats the actual demand for it. Uh, but I think it's a fair assessment to say there's a, lot of de- <laughs> there's a lot of demand on this deal. I would agree with that as well, Joel. Just in terms of the order book itself, is there any way of counting the same orders twice? Uh, I if, don't if you have a book runner from different banks going around and, and getting together orders? I don't believe so, John. I, I think the, the, that the book runners work together. Uh, so I don't think that they're double counted, but I think we, what uh, clients do is they overstate what their demand is. So yeah. They can get a slice of the pie. I think maybe an example of that yeah. would have been like the 2013 Verizon Vodafone deal uh, where there was $49 billion of debt issued and wound up going to seven different uh, sell-side shops. Okay, this, uh, is, this is really important what Joel just said there. There's a substantial deal that went to exactly seven units. The Exxon five-year piece, John, State Farm, Travelers, Dimensional Fund, Manulife of Montreal, we talked to their people, UBS of, of Switzerland, and the New Jersey something pension fund. Those are the kind of clients, John, buying this stuff. Yeah, so let's talk about how you price it, Joel. For an issue like this, does it get priced relative to its peers in investment grade? It could be priced at AAA, it is single, single A. Or does it get priced close to the sovereign? How do you price this kind of thing, to Exxon or to the kingdom? Sure. Well, you know, our uh, our analyst at uh, BI, Jamin Patel, has done a great job on this. And uh, Jamin's view is that it should be priced close to the sovereign, but not inside the sovereign. Um, so that's kind of where he, he is uh, viewing the bonds and uh, where they should be valued at.
Would that suggest why we've got so much demand, Joel? Because it has the price tight to the sovereign, but ultimately that is cheaper than the, the Exxon curve and the majors in the oil market? Oh, you're exactly right, John. Uh, on top of that, you also have new bonds that will be index eligible. So anybody that is benchmarking themselves against the Bloomberg's Barclay Index will want to own a piece of it. Uh, it reminds me very much of 2013 when Apple came, uh, yeah. when they started issuing uh, heavy issues. Uh, if you go back and look at the 10-year bond that they issued then, that bond has outperformed the market by 570 basis points. So wow. uh, a very similar setup here. Where, to your point, okay. the bonds trade wide. Let's unpack what you just said, because that's very heavy real yield jargon that we would expect on the real yield at 1 p.m. on Fridays. <laughs> Basically, if you have a benchmark bond, you're forced to buy it, which means price up, yield down, right? That's exactly right. Okay. Is there going to be a second Aramco deal? I mean, if I'm Aramco, I'm dribbling it out, 10 billion, whatever the number is. Do you just presume X number of months, years down the road, they do a follow-on deal? Uh, I do. Uh, most, uh, once they start on the debt hamster wheel, never get off of it. The, I like that. Isn't that They nice? were such a good band. Debt hamster deal did rush like nobody. Isn't that a great name debt for hamster. a band? <laughs> if you need another show to do, John, John, ladies and gentlemen, this is John Farrow with Debt Hamster Wheel. Joel just, Joel just touched on a really important topic, and you guys were just discussing it. I want to finish there. When a bond goes into an index, essentially what happens, Joel, is the companies with the most amount of debt can attract the most amount of demand sometimes. And Joel, that for a lot of people is very counterintuitive, isn't it? Uh, totally, totally. And in investment grade, uh, that could be quite understandable because some of the biggest companies in the world, like a, like a Walmart or an Apple, uh, have oodles of cash flow. Uh, and sometimes when you're looking at high yield, uh, that works against you because you have these big businesses that had been investment grade but have become fallen angels um, because usually because of operational issues or secular changes in their businesses uh, wind up being the largest debtors in high yield. So it's quite a different story if you're talking about investment grade or high yield. Joel Levington there of Bloomberg Intelligence getting you up to speed on some of the dynamics behind that record-breaking issuance from Sally Aramco or record-breaking demand, whichever way you want to frame it. Fascinating story. Much more on that coming up on the program. Next up on the program, we'll bring you the view from right here in the United States and where the next battleground for a trade dispute is with Europe. Escalating trade tension between the US and Europe. Up next. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. You stuck with me today. Got to stop complaining about this. Guy Johnson, still away. He'll be back on Monday. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You're listening to The Cable. A close that takes us a little bit lower on the FTSE 100. We take some weight off the benchmark in London. We are down at the close by a third of 1% on the FTSE. That's around about 26 points. In the United States, the S&P 500, a little lighter as well. We shave a third of 1% of the S&P today. There's some of the moves. A little bit weaker. Some risk aversion bleeding through this market as the session grew older. In the bond market, it means a bid for treasuries. It means yields lower by just a couple of basis points. Call it three on a 10-year, just south of 250. On a two-year note, your yield, 2.339%. In the FX market, sterling. Just softening up ahead of that summit and that Brexit deadline. Another one. I know you're excited. Cable, 130.41. We're down by a tenth of 1%. So actually cross-asset setup. 
today through the afternoon. Let's get you up to speed on some of the top stories. It's Charlie Pally. Hi, thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Got to begin with the global picture. Lots going on in terms of trade and tariffs, a topic you have been covering on radio and television, and a topic we will be covering right here on the cable. But first, the European Union preparing retaliatory tariffs against the U.S. over subsidies to Boeing, significantly escalating transatlantic trade tensions hours after Washington vowed to hit the EU with duties over its support for Airbus. And this morning, the International Monetary Fund cut its outlook for global growth to the lowest since the financial crisis amid a bleaker outlook in most major advanced economies and signs that higher tariffs are weighing on trade. It says the world economy will grow 3.3% this year, down from the 3.5% the IMF had forecast for 2019 as recently as January. Jaguar Land Rover offering an easy way for carless Londoners to improve Press with a cool set of wheels just in time for the weekend. In Motion Ventures, the carmaker's venture capital fund has started an app, of course, to request a flashy rental that will be delivered right to your front door. Customers in the capital can book one of the 50 Land Rover Discovery Sports models, and the company hopes to add a wider variety of models in the future. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, I can see you in a Land Rover. Back to you. Well, I can see me maybe in a Land Rover Defender. I love those cars. Yeah. I think they're really, really cool. Yeah. Are you I'm, a car guy, by the way? No, I'm not. I don't have a driving license, Charlie. You're kidding me. No, I'm a city boy. You're kidding I'm me. I'm a city boy. How do you get around? Walk and be driven. And well, what? So when, whenever you go to a destination, whether it's in the UK or the United States, you've either got to rely on a bus or a friend who's going to drive you around. You know, I've or Uber. Things, things are working out okay. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's funny because I've got a teenage son. He has absolutely zero desire to get a driver's license. Look, if you live in New York or if you live in London, I see very little need to get a driving license. Because you can use the public transport. You're absolutely right. You know what else has changed, though? Back when I was growing up, you used to have to have a car to get away from your parents so you could go to a mall, hang out with your friends. Who goes to malls? And who goes to malls, number one. Number two, you want to accomplish that. You can do that on your Xbox. You can do that on your phone. You can get out of yeah. your parents' sight. You no longer need to, quote, Well, the interesting thing about this app, isn't this the future of driving ultimately that we will all have these subscriptions to various car companies and then all of a sudden cars will appear correct. autonomous driving correct. cars correct. will appear so I might have the Jaguar Land Rover subscription correct and then I can use a Jaguar Land Rover to drive me around yeah I've got a trip coming up and this is going to be the first time I've done this I've talked about doing it I'm not going to rent a car I'm going to rely entirely on Uber for my transportation good for you and it, you know it may come out to be a little bit more expensive it may not but that's part of the in learning process in 50 years time if we just have driverless cars autonomous vehicles and that's the future. What happens to the driving test? Do they change it? Or do we just not have one? It becomes irrelevant, right? It's like what happens to a license to get into broadcasting in the United States? You no longer need it. I mean, Don't it, you? It comes, no, not anymore. It's completely gone. What did but you need before? It used to be what was known as an FCC third-class license. The engineers, the really smart people, the people that make it all happen, that control the transmitters. They used to need a license. They had to, had to have a so-called first-class license. And the crazy thing is, and I'm going to weave immigration into this, the reason why I became an American citizen from the United Kingdom is when I was in college, you had to have this license. In order to get the license, you had to be a U.S. No citizen. No way. And that was my motivation for becoming a U.S. citizen. When, I was, did, I was, when did the accent go, Charlie? Uh, uh, the, the, when, when the second I hit high school over here and the kids made fun of me for having a U.K. accent. Oh, really? And, and so I, I did everything I could to get rid of the accent by listening to people on the radio.
That's amazing. You know, full cycle. Anyway, Charlie, thank you. I, I, we always have a knack for taking it in a different direction. Well, great we? to catch up with you. you I actually too, thought that was really insightful, Charlie. Yeah, thank you, you. For more insight on some important topics not related to Charlie's life. I've, I I had a third-class license. Michael McKee is with us. I had a third-class broadcast license. I wish I still what, what, had What was somewhere. that? You needed one too. It was basically that you could um, do minor stuff like operate the transmitter. For those who don't understand um, terrestrial radio broadcast, Broadcasting a lot of stations, and I, th- I think including our station in New York City, um, the pattern changes. The where it reaches changes uh, at sundown and sunup, and you had to twist a dial to do that. And basically, you were qualified to twist a dial if you had the uh, if you had the license. Fascinating. But I was never a UK citizen, so I didn't have to. I almost feel sorry for Charlie that he had to change his accent. Yeah. Do you think the same is going to happen to me at some point? <laughs> <laughs> my teas, my, t- my teas are slowly going. I have to say, I'm losing them very, very slowly, but they're going, and I wow. can feel it because when I pronounce my teas in U.S. stores, they don't understand what I'm saying. So if you say butter, you need to say butter, and the same with party. <laughs> you can't say party. You need to say party, and it, and they've they're always confused when I when I pronounce my teas. <laughs> I understand you perfectly. Thank you, so. Mike. I appreciate that. Do you understand where the next trade battlefront is going? Because it looks like the EU is increasingly in the uh, the target line of the U.S. administration. Yeah, it seems like uh, the president of the United States has gotten a little bored and is looking to to raise some cane somewhere else. Uh, What they're talking about right now is uh, imposing sanctions on the EU for Airbus. And you can argue with a lot of the things that the Trump administration has done, but there is a case to be made. This has been going on, the who subsidizes who uh, case in terms of Airbus and Boeing for 15 years. Uh, This has literally been going on forever. And so in a way, they're trying to shake things up. They can argue uh, the EU, uh, the the WTO found in our favor, and so if the EU doesn't change their practices, we can put on sanctions. Now the WTO also found that there were subsidies given to Boeing, so the EU can say we're going to put on sanctions, and maybe if the two sides start whacking each over other over the head, uh, they'll both sit down and say, well, we could negotiate this rather than. Uh, fight it out in the courts and the tariffs. So we'll see what happens with that. But the, what people are worried about is it's just the start of something, and then, then we move on to cars and other things like that. What did the WTO actually rule on this? Because Airbus and Boeing both claimed it as a win. Yeah, they, the, the WTO found that both sides offered subsidies to their plane makers. Now, uh, the EU a little more directly through the countries in which it manufactures its various parts in the U.S. because uh, states granted tax benefits to Boeing for locating plants there. Uh, they do that for all kinds of companies. They tried to do it for Amazon here in New York City. Uh, But in this case, that was ruled an illegal subsidy. Um, And it's kind of, you both do it, and neither plane maker is having any trouble getting orders and having a huge backlog. So to the outsider, it seems kind of silly. I suppose there's some um, principles involved. But uh, as I say, what worries people is this goes, it's just the start of uh, something rolling downhill. Michael McKee.
Great to have you with us. He's going to stick with us as we run you through some of the big events taking place tomorrow. Massive Wednesday coming up. U.S. inflation data, FOMC minutes from the Federal Reserve, and we'll be catching up with President Mario Draghi. News conference, ECB decision coming on a Wednesday. So Wednesday, still don't understand why it's not Thursday, but it's coming on Wednesday. We'll discuss that and the U.S. labor market. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio, ahead of a big Wednesday for global markets. US CPI, Federal Reserve Minutes and an ECB rate decision and news conference with President Mario Draghi to discuss. I'm pleased to say Michael McKee is still with us, our international economics and policy correspondent here at Bloomberg. So, Mike, take your pick tomorrow. Three big events. Which one will you be most focused on? Um, actually, I... I I'm going to be most focused on, and this may surprise you, uh, the EU and uh, Theresa May. Wow. Uh, The reason being is that's sort of a red line, to steal her word. Uh, They're either going to give her a long extension uh, or they're likely to give her nothing. Um, Doesn't seem like there's much enthusiasm for the short extension that she wants. And so it really is a a uh, decision-forcing date, perhaps, um, of course, never underestimate the EU's ability to kick things down the road. But in theory, that could happen. Whereas we're going to get a CPI number, and it's going to be important to the Fed, but there's going to be another one next month. And uh, it, it, the Fed is on hold, so it's not going to change anybody's real perception of what the U.S. Central Bank is going to do. And with the ECB, we kind of know what they're aiming at. Um, obviously, Mario Draghi can always make news. Uh, and um, he goes out of his way not to. Uh, we'll see what they say about Teltros, and we'll see what he, how he follows up on his uh, theory that he's going to help uh, banks that are hurt by negative interest rates at a time M- mitigate. He it, said it I doesn't think. seem like the ECB is even discussing it, Mike. So right. it's a bit confusing that one at the moment. Right. Uh, so maybe there's some clarification there, but uh, unless he comes up with something surprising, most of that is probably also priced into the markets. And the odd thing about Brexit is it hasn't been priced. I mean, we get movement in sterling, little bits, one way or the other, that we make a big deal out of every time there's a news headline. But there's been no firm, uh, since the 2016, uh, we, we saw a big decline. And then it's kind of stayed there. And, and we haven't seen anybody with any conviction about what's going to happen. And I'm just thinking maybe tomorrow it starts to force that. So you think that might change. So let's talk about that. Back in 2016, very quickly viewed as a global problem, very quickly subsequently viewed as a European problem, and soon after that viewed as a domestic problem for the UK. You think that's going to work its way back out again? I think it may. Uh, I mean, we the biggest problem that we've had in the UK economy is uncertainty. I mean, spending has held up, and everybody's been surprised by that, and so has have jobs, and uh, GDP has hung in there. But what's not been happening, and you and I talked about it on your TV show earlier today, is business investment. And they're not setting the stage for future growth. They're not investing in new plant and equipment. And that's going to be a real problem. And, of course, many companies have announced they're going to stop production or move out. And that may be in in any case. But if they hope to staunch the bleeding, they got to come up with some sort of decision one way or another. So there's some certainty for business to move ahead. And that's what hasn't happened. And that's why everybody is, uh, you know, is is 
negative about, and Mark Carney, negative about the economic prospects going forward. So let's talk about the economy. I had a conversation with Michael Cushman and Morgan Stanley earlier, and he actually said something quite interesting, and he always does, so I don't mean to make that sound like it was surprising. It was quite profound. He said, if you look at the labour markets worldwide, everything gives you the illusion of resiliency. Everything's okay. In Europe, we've got a resilient labour market, even though the economy's been pretty soft. In the UK, likewise. You pointed out something earlier, Mike, that I think is really, really important. Business investment, that's where Brexit shows up bright red on the UK economy's radar. Yeah, and the same in the United States, by the way. We haven't seen uh, much business spending here either. And that's the problem for later 2019 and into 2020-21 and why some people think we may see contraction down the road because business is just not setting up for more business. And we're also, if we do see wages start to rise because of unemployment pressures, you're going to see uh, companies have to take it out of their margins and that just slows down more investment. Michael McKee, great to see you. Our international economics and policy correspondent for Bloomberg, running you through some really important topics. Um, Next on the programme, I'll bring you the market view, the market strategy view from HSBC. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jonathan Farrow. Guy Johnson, away through the week. He'll be back with us after his holiday. He'll be back on Monday. So equity's a little softer, but the appetite for debt is still enormous. We had a Saudi Aramco debt offering earlier today, $12 billion worth, and an order book that totaled $100 billion, a gauge of just some of the appetite, padded out a fair bit, most people would recognise, but a gauge still, nevertheless, of the amount of appetite there is out there for growth, for yield, more specifically. Earlier today, Tom Keen and I spoke with Max Kettner of HSBC Bank, the multi-asset strategist over there, and we began by asking him about the broad reach for yield globally. Take a listen. Look, I think from what you see in terms of credit, in terms of sentiment, also credit versus equities, for example, I think what you do see is there's a lot of people pulled up about credit and about high yield already in particular. On the other hand, if you look at sentiment, if you look at positioning, if you look at flows in equities, it doesn't really suggest that people are overly bullish on equities yet. Yeah. If you look at some of our sentiment indices, but you also look at broader sort of risk-on, risk-off positioning at the moment, it doesn't really suggest that it's the time to sell equities right now on credit. On high yield, I'd be a bit more cautious, really. I mean, it's been a terrible year in the stock market. NASDAQ Composite up 19.9%. S&P 500 up 15.5%. Dow Jones is just, John, it's been terrible, underperforming up 12.9%. What a tough year. Ben Laidler of HSBC nailed this. Is he still right going forward, Max? Is your colleague right with a call of the year about stay in equities because nobody loves him? I, th- I think so. I think for the time being, we, we still can be right. If you look, for example, at the earnings season that's now just about to start. I mean, we started three, four months ago. We started with expectations of about plus 4% year over year in the U.S. Now we're down to almost minus 4 right? Or you look at uh, macro activities, or not only micro, but also the macro activity in the U.S. in the second quarter. There's yeah. a lot of one-offs, a lot of base effects, I think, that will be cancelled out in the second quarter, such as, you know, you have consumer confidence. Confidence, consumer right. sentiment, you've got the rising, got higher oil prices, that's oh. going to be good for investment. Personal consumption is going to rebound. 
also government spending should rebound. So well, macro and okay. micro look better, I think. Do you have an efficient frontier? I mean, how can you have a risk-free rate with all that negative yield out there, the goofiness in the full faith and credit fixed income market? Do you have a handle on the theoretical basis to calculate your al- allocation right now? I think it's tough right now. Really, yeah. really tough. You know what? Because if you think, if you think right now, um, well, we're pretty close. You know, we're pretty close to the end of the cycle. Whether it's going to come this year or next year, or 21, who knows, right? We've got like our economists have uh, two rate cuts, rate cuts by the Fed in for next year, for example. The problem is, if you do these kind of efficient frontiers with, let's say, the last 10 years of data, how much, you know, how much of, of relevance are they going yeah. forward? How much of relevance are they? If you're, so, if you're sort of riding at such a tight rope, if you're riding at so, so close to the end of, of the party, really. And John Farrell, the differential here between HSBC two rate cuts and Drew Madison with MetLife looking for a rate increase. So let's talk about that, mm. the prospect of rate cuts, Max. You know, Tom always says it's so difficult to game a recession, but people are trying to game a recession. Let's just assume in 2020 we get a recession. It doesn't necessarily mean that the next couple of months or, fa- or in fact, the rest of this year will be bad for risk assets. Uh, not yet. Yeah, I think you're completely right. And I think uh, I would agree completely because from a tactical perspective, Jonathan, I think we do still see a little bit of a bounce back, as I said, in the macro and then the micro picture. And I think that will keep people really on their toes and be like, OK, this is actually much, much better than we thought in the first quarter. So we do have a little bit more leeway to play this recovery in the second quarter. The problem I see, and you've just referred to that then sort of going into 2020, the problem I see is I think the risk is just like the biggest opportunity right now. The biggest opportunity, the biggest chances, we do get this bounce in the second quarter, both on a micro and a macro level. The problem then is that there's a high, really a high chance, a high risk that investors will sort of extrapolate that bounce in the second quarter over to the second half of the year. And I think that could be elusive. That's very risky. I think people would be sort of really being caught on the wrong foot for being too yeah. bullish then in the second quarter. And that's what we could be heading closer towards uh, really pricing more cuts then. So, Max, this is the time in the back half. That's the time you think is to de-risk start to become a little bit more defensive. Walk me through how you do, you do that, just the classic setup for us. Uh, not really. So my, my setup right now is pretty clear. I would say, look, for now, you stay in risk assets, you enjoy the next couple of weeks, and sometime towards the end of Q2, sometimes towards uh, the, um, the start of the second half of the year, then, as I said, people will become too jubilant, and that's when you start to do risk. Obviously, with you know you referring to those really terrible Q1 numbers of equities. If you look, for example, at some of the option skews, right in the option market, for example, on on the euro stocks, skews are so low, it's it's quite cheap to hedge. So if you're saying, look, I'll just want to log in some gains, not really become bearish, but just lock in some of my really spectacular gains in Q1, uh, the right. option market does suggest you do have some opportunities there, really. Okay, there's some jargon there, folks, on skew. And the bottom line is, you can hedge cheaply, you can protect yourself cheaply. Um, Matt, that's all fine, but that goes to another idea, which is the bet in the market, which is this fancy word convexity as well. Is there a big bet in the equity market right now? I don't think so. I think, look, from from, uh, what you could see also in terms of regional differentiation, for example, if you look in terms of EM versus DM, the big picture, really. So emerging market equities 
versus developed market equities. There's been relatively little differentiation in the first quarter. You know, we've been talking about this for almost four months now. Yeah. Which one should we choose? Is this more dovish? Is the more dovish Fed supportive for um, EM or is it more supportive for for DM because actually that's going to loosen credit conditions and DM more than in EM? You know, all these discussions. And essentially, we don't really have that much of a differentiation there. So at the moment, I think it looks like it's a bit of a broad-based rally. It's a bit of a really sort of a, a broad-based, um, you know, uh, sort of investors becoming broad-based uh, jubilant, really. That's, that will ultimately become a problem, just not quite yet. Max Kettner there of HSBC Bank, the multi-asset strategist, joining Tom Keen and I a little bit earlier. You've been listening to The Cable from New York and London. You're listening to Bloomberg Radio. 